What they left behind was both traditional and Asian. What they moved toward was both modern and Western. The transformation required them not merely to abandon past modes of thought and ways of doing things, but also to sacrifice a part of their cultural identity. It posed the question, can one be simultaneously modern and Japanese? History is the most important tool for change. In order to improve ourselves, we must look into our past to understand our shortcomings and our achievements. Sometimes events and people are lost and not taught in schools. Join me as I take a look into human history and rediscover these people and events that have shaped our lives and find out why we're here. Japan, like other Eastern countries, does not get a place in U.S. history class as it should. Its transition to modernization is fascinating because of its ability to progress while trying to retain its isolation. Welcome to Why We're Here podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Shields, and this episode will be just slightly different because it's going to be a setup for the next episode. Instead of overwhelming you with pre-modern Japanese policies and the story of its governmental shift... I've broken this episode down as sort of a crash course in the structure and left the next episode for the main topic, the final years of the Tokugawa. I believe it would be much better to absorb the information this way than an hour or more of keeping track of Japanese names and events. My source for these episodes comes from the book The Rise of Modern Japan by W.G. Beasley. The structure of the Tokugawa government formed the basis of the later regimes either by example or differing from it. Within their rule, Japan's economy fluctuated greatly due to the questionable expenses made by the elites and the disparities between classes. Class differences were seen through the culture and religions of the Tokugawa house and the samurai who played the role as civil servants for the lords of the village. They were seen as famed noblemen whose views influenced the society. As society shifted, the samurai and the merchants began to think differently about the roles of the feudal lords while tensions rose between the opposing classes. Japan's government and the changing economy under the Tokugawa rule, along with the writings of the religious scholars, propagated the divide between samurai and lord, which led to Western involvement and increased the rising tensions within the country. The rule of the Tokugawa house lasted from 1600 to 1868 and marked the beginning of social stability and oppression by the institutions. The economy that developed under its rule was a precursor for Western-style growth, or a sort of, quote, embryo capitalism. Their rule formed the nation's traditions and culture, and the overthrow of the government was the first step into the modern world. Japan was similar to medieval Europe by its ruling class of lords and samurai bound by relationships and their payment of crops as taxes from the peasants. The government was described as a feudal state or lords over a domain, which collected payment from the farmers and villagers, and they would report to the capital. It formed after years of civil wars in the 15th and 16th centuries where military men and administrators had drawn out the territories and placed themselves as the rulers. However, they differed for many reasons, such as a stronger central authority. The lord's domains were more like princedoms than fiefs. Most of the samurai did not keep their land for service, and power was exercised bureaucratically. Japan did have an emperor, but his military deputy, the shogun, was the real ruler of Japan for centuries. In 1603, the founder of the Tokugawa house, Yasu, took office of the shogun, which gave him power over all regions and all people, including the imperial court. Court nobles who represented the shogun's interests had to pledge a special oath of allegiance to him, and senior court officials only held ceremonial titles. They hardly had any influence on government. The emperor was essentially a prisoner in his palace in Kyoto, while the real rulers lived in the shogun's capital, Edo. 
A governor represented the shogun in Kyoto and was chosen among the shogun's friends or relatives. The office of the shogun was filled with his heirs or relatives since shortly after 1650 the Tokugawa line rarely provided a capable male. The central administration called the bakufu made most of the bureaucratic decisions. It was headed by four or five counselors called the roshu who were responsible for general policy making and supervision of other lords. Under them were vassals of lesser rank who administered shrines and temples, finances, Edo and Kyoto, other large urban centers, and the Tokugawa estates. The feudal lords were known as the daimyo and were ranked by their relationship to the Tokugawa. Blood relatives were excluded from holding office but were still influential through their status and relations. Below the daimyo were the long-standing landowners called the fudai. They filled the offices of the bakufu. Some lords were excluded from the central government, or, quote, outside, and were called the Tozama. They acted independently, except from the shogun. The domains under the daimyo ranged from a dozen or so villages to an entire province. The daimyo acted as masters of their domain, essentially free from interference by the shogun's capital. They monitored their administration on the Tokugawa house, with the senior counselors appointed from their relatives or friends, and middle to low-ranked samurai occupied the remaining post. Although the daimyo were not directly accountable to the shogun, they had little freedom as a person. The shogun could transfer them to another domain, reduce their holdings, call to carry out public works, and more. The bakufu also had to approve any marriages of the daimyo as well. The daimyo did not collect taxes from the domains. Instead, they required the lords to spend six months, sometimes an entire year, in Edo. This was known as sankankotai, or quote, alternate attendance, and was crucial for maintaining the shogun's authority. Peasant farmers populated the villages, and a village headman, who was also a farmer, represented the local authority under the samurai. The farmers tended the land, and their surplus was paid as feudal dues, while the village headman was in charge of distributing the shares for taxes. He also settled civil disputes, organized festivals, planned irrigation, and reported to the daimyo, because the samurai only went to the villages during times of crisis, such as natural disaster, or to evaluate the crops for taxes. They were admired as outsiders. Japan's economy was based on agriculture, and the land was measured in the estimated production of koku of rice. A koku was equivalent to five bushels, or around 176 liters, and the koku was used as an estimate of the population as a one-to-one -one ratio. The first three Tokugawa rulers redistributed the domain so that they would have the most dominant and strategic areas. Their shogun and servants had one quarter of the entire land. The branch families of the Tokugawa had 10% combined, and the fudai collectively had one-fifth of the land. Most of the estates were centered in the middle of the country to give the bakufu control over the areas surrounding Edo and Kyoto. The remaining 40% of farmable land in the south, west, and northeast were given to the Tozama, with the most powerful, quote, province holders placed on the borders of the obedient fudai. As Japan entered the 17th century, its economy began to rise rapidly with the growth in population and agriculture, which stimulated domestic commerce and the growth of more towns. The larger, quote, castle towns were linked by Edo by the alternate attendance rule, which made it necessary to move goods and resources within the country. This made Edo a huge consumer market for the ruling daimyo housed there, while the city of Osaka became the center for commerce and finance. The rapid growth can be attributed to many reasons, such as the large differentiation of merchants between Edo and Osaka, the construction of roads and use of shipping routes throughout the country, and the start of a national market for many cultivated products. The national market changed agriculture from farming to sustain to producing cash crops by region. Regional specialties included silk grown in the northern mountains, cotton cultivated in the west, and sugar produced in the southern islands. 
The farmers also produced more efficiently by use of animals and fertilizers. Farmers by the 19th century, quote, typically grew what soil, climate, and price favored, regardless of what they themselves happened to need, end quote. Before the influence of capitalism by the West, Japan developed an economy similar to its modern one. For example, advanced regions had the villagers using cash to make purchases instead of growing crops. Some of the villagers became landlords or entrepreneurs who would market crops and fertilizers or produce sake or textiles. Merchants would also make wholesale deals, plan shipping routes, and dealt with making loans or transferring credits. However, there were many factors that prevented Japan from industrial capitalism. The major reason was the size of the domestic market added with the separation of feudal domains. The daimyo refused to transfer labor to other lands. The technology of manufacturing goods was still powered by water. Lastly, the connection of monopolies, political authorities, and merchants in the capital slowed economic progress. The expenditure to revenue ratio began to fluctuate as prices rose slowly over the years. This was due to the largest part of revenue raised in rice by the bakufu and the daimyo, while their expenditures were in cash in town economies. Matching this ratio became difficult in many circumstances, so the daimyo would turn to merchants for help. They borrowed loans from the merchants to balance the ratio, but this resulted in most administrations with a large debt by the end of the 17th century. The daimyo usually raised more revenue to cope. Attempts were also made to raise the dues for the peasants, but due to high taxes already, increasing was limited to prevent any resistance. The Bakufu tried to balance the debt with two approaches. The first was the manipulation of currency by issuing paper money for all domains or debasing the coinage, a practice done many times since 1695. This approach decreased stability of the urban markets. The second was the distribution of special loans called Guyokin to merchants. They were persuaded to purchase these loans that had little expectation of payback by social dignities like minor-ranked samurai. They were pressured to encourage generosity, and by the end of the Tokugawa period, the loans were so common they were essentially a tax on the commercially wealthy. Monopolies were also a major part of the economy because the government had given them the framework. The daimyo's treasury would partner with privileged merchants who bought a specialized product of the region, for example cotton, at a fixed price in paper money, then, quote, export the product to Osaka or other commercial markets. They were created in the domains and received a major share in the profits. The money economy and commercial agriculture increased opportunities to become wealthy. Farmers with large lands had many resources to open new lands and improve in technologies to become richer. Farmers with smaller lands could focus on growing cash crops to meet with demands. However, these opportunities for the rich also increased the poor. Rising costs and taxes sent some farmers to a money lender, which resulted in most losing their land. Former independent farmers became landless laborers or moved to towns to work for industries such as cotton spinning, brewing sake, or paper manufacturing. This new type of industry was at its height at the end of the 18th century and beginning of 19th century, and was the start of a new class of rural entrepreneurs. This new class of farmers extended their operations into retail, money lending, manufacturing, or all of these. They were still landlords, but spent less time managing product cultivation. They were common in advanced villages and lived like middle or high-ranked samurai, but still unable to break past their status unless married into the family of an official. They could also purchase domain loans to receive a family name and wear the two swords of a samurai. These social changes were the start of an elite class who would be concerned with commerce and industry and a workforce not based in agriculture, which began to shape a new culture in the society. Japanese culture and tradition stem from Buddhism and Confucianism brought over from China. Much of the art style and the language were also Chinese. 
The traditions would mostly become assimilated through the generations as Japanese. The dominant religion in the country was Buddhism until around 1550 when the daimyo removed the Buddhists from their lands. Many of the Buddhist sects did not resist, which cost their independence, but in return they were given political backing. This gave them a large allegiance by the population. Confucianism in the Tokugawa period became the main philosophy of the educated samurai. Its ideas were a simple code of ethics and behaviors that matched Buddha's concerns for the next life. A Neo-Confucianism form became the dominant philosophy because it took Confucian ethics and focused them toward maintaining order and authority. It came from, quote, the moral obligations between sovereign and subject, father and child, husband and wife, elder and younger brother, and friend and friend, end quote. It was a philosophy that mirrored the nature of the universe through unequal relations. In China, it justified the dominant place of the scholar official, while in Japan, it was tweaked because the samurai had status through birth and it applied to their role as bureaucrat. Shinto was the next leading religion, and the rituals were practiced alongside the Buddhist ones. This blend of religions continued into the modern times, but underwent a major change for the elite and intellectuals. During the 18th century, a Shinto scholar named Moto Ore Norinaga proposed the views of good and evil were reflected through Japan's experience and tradition passed down by the sun goddess Amaterasu through her descendants. He also argued that the emperor ruled by his right of heritage as direct descendant to the sun goddess and deserved undisputed obedience that also applied to the shogun. Loyalty ran in a hierarchy. The samurai was to be loyal to his lord, who owed to the shogun, who was to obey the emperor. By the 19th century, Motoori's ideas were accepted yet considered disruptive by the Tokugawa rulers. He avoided censorship by the bakufu because he pressed that his ideas explain the will of the gods. The Shinto concept for, quote, imperial divinity was the basis for validating the feudal hierarchy, which was necessary for kokugaku, or, quote, national learning. The revival of Shinto was seen as an offense against the samurai and placed merchants at the bottom of the feudal order. Many samurai followed Motoori and his successors, while others between samurai and commoner preferred to avoid the bakufu and their police. Everyone did not accept this concept of Shinto. In the 18th century, Ashita Baigan made an argument to give the merchant greater respect because trade was a fundamental service to the country. He declared that it did not deny the values of society, but pronounced them and could coexist with the samurai's code of loyalty, conservation, and obedience. The samurai for years was a farmer warrior who cultivated the land during times of peace, then was called upon to fight wars. But as warfare became more and more complex, warriors became specialists and the samurai split more from their role as a farmer. This distinction became formal in 1588 when farmers were forbidden to carry arms. This led to the samurai becoming part of a garrison and losing most of their land once the Tokugawa took over. In return, they were paid in rice or on some occasions cash. Some rural samurai, called goshi, were allowed to keep their land but sacrificed their privileges of rank and could not hold office or be a part of the village community. Since they were no longer required to fight as a soldier, they became civil officials who made policies for rural districts, supervised finances, and acted as attendants and messengers. This led to many men to understand bureaucracy and office work as Japan entered the modern age. Although, most samurai were underemployed and underpaid with the only chance for raises dependent on promotion of rank. This was done through marriage, adoption, or favoritism, and rarely on merit. They lived in and governed villages and were highly revered by the peasants. The merchants and artisans of the towns served the samurai by providing goods and financial advice to collect taxes but were in separate districts. 
The merchants and artisans formed groups to protect themselves against oppression and debt, but still had to answer to the samurai. The urban extravagance of the towns made corruption a problem among the samurai as feudal debt became a staple of the economy in the 19th century. Many samurai lacked the financial skills to track their household expenses, which resulted in common arrangements with merchants. To protect themselves, the merchants would make advancements against the samurai's future income. These were difficult to repay due to the high interest rates, and most advancements in cash were the stipends and rice the samurai received, but selling them at once drove prices down. The samurai were under social pressure to purchase goods for their families when they were in a surplus, so these debts were difficult to avoid, and samurai could not extricate themselves like the daimyo. This led to few options, such as marrying or adoption into a merchant family, abandon their rank and duties for farming and trade, or become poor, which most did. The way of the samurai was taught as modified Chinese philosophy, such as cultural superiority against the foreigners, or quote, barbarians. They also believed in ethical importance of production over profit and dependence on the farmers for revenue for the rulers. The samurai code was called Bushido and was partially formed by Confucianism to follow virtues such as obedience to their lord and parent, respect for both Shinto and Buddhist gods, courage, and self-discipline. They were required to follow the duties as a mentor to the people. Yamagasoko, who would go on to claim that the teachings of Confucius came from Japanese emperors, used these Confucian morals as a part of Bushido. Yomaga incited the debates that Japan was the center of Asian culture. He also sparked the understanding between Shinto and Buddhism that ruled the attitudes of the samurai under Tokugawa. This led to a, quote, religious revival that could free Shinto from Buddhism while also rejecting Confucianism as the dominant philosophy. These ideas influenced the Shinto scholar Motoori. The philosophies and way of life of the samurai decided the culture and beliefs of society, which remained true through the modernization of Japan. Since the samurai lived in towns with the merchants and the artisans, the influences of an emerging world of theater and art called yukio, or quote, the floating world, dominated their entertainment. It catered to lives, quote, of fugitive pleasures, of theaters and restaurants, with their permanent population of actors, dancers, singers, storytellers, jesters, courtesans, bath girls, and itinerant purveyors, among whom mingled the prolific sons of rich merchants, dissolute samurai, and naughty apprentices, end quote. This new art form was the basis for subject matter that could incite a social revolution, such as themes that pitted feudal or family loyalty against personal interest. Theaters and short stories or novels also presented the twist of fates of rich merchants and poor artisans, as well as their mistresses and wives. This quote, floating world, resulted from an economic change that was undergoing alongside change in the feudal system, and Japan's separation from Chinese traditions into a more native-focused and less elitist way of life. The negative attitudes toward the elite stem from occasions throughout history where tyrannical lords had exploited the pleasants to desperation. The allowance of monopolies caused further problems by decreasing profits of commercial crops. This led to uprisings like the one in Miyazu in which 70,000 peasants protested the lord's new tax. This was one of 400 examples of what was labeled as, quote, demonstrations that occurred throughout Japan between 1813 to 1863. Tensions in the village community between landlord and tenant continued for Japan into the 20th century. The policies of the Bakufu under Tokugawa rule led to disparate wealth, which left the peasants and villagers frustrated and influenced by the views of the samurai through their culture and beliefs. As I get into the last years of the Tokugawa next week, there are a few key points from this episode to keep in mind. 
The first is that the shogun ruled as policymaker in Edom, while the emperor in Kyoto seemed to be seen as a ceremonious title by the bakufu. Domain lords created strife among peasants and merchants through bad investments and allowing monopolies to have control. The samurai were beginning to shift their religion toward one that focused on obedience to feudal order with the emperor at the top. They were also being disenfranchised, and as social influencers, their role in the growing tensions against the elite proved pivotal in the downfall of the Tokugawa. I'd also like to give special thanks to a few people who have been very helpful in support of my passion to create this podcast and continue writing new episodes. Of course, my friends, my coworkers, and my family have been the biggest support. The first person is a coworker who has shown interest in collaborating, and I would love to do something in the near future. His name is Ty Lester on SoundCloud. That's spelled T-Y-L-E-S-T-E-R. I suggest you look him up. He's a lyricist with some great music on his profile that's definitely worth the listen. Speaking of collaboration, I was a guest on a podcast recently where we talked about history and the untold parts. His name is Robbie Robertson, and he is the host of a freeform interview podcast called Out of the Blank. I listen to him on Spotify, and I'm pretty sure he's on many other platforms as well. You can check out his Instagram for links and info. His account is at outoftheblank underscore podcast. I've had other DIY podcasts reach out and support me on there, and I want to thank you all for the help. One guy in particular was very encouraging and helped me to make some small adjustments to make better quality sounding episodes. His account is at content sound, spelled C-O-N-T-E-N-T-S-O-U-N-D. And he offers post-production services for podcasts if you're looking for some extra help making your podcast sound professional. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, I'm at whywearehearepodcast. My Twitter is at whywearehearepod. And if you'd like to send me an email of any suggestions or if you have any feedback, you can reach me at whywearehearepodcast at gmail.com. Most importantly, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. Just taking the time out of your day to listen to my show is a huge motivation for me to continue doing this. Please tell your friends, family, and even your teachers about this show. The only way I get more listeners is by word of mouth, and more listeners mean greater dedication to the show. Another way is by rating me on Apple Podcasts and leaving comments for others to see. Thank you all again, and join me next episode to find out why we're here.